Streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well, and for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, And this is the show where we sit down with the most interesting people I can find and learn a little bit about their world. This week, folks, we got another great show for you. Of course, last week, we spoke with the great Mike Thorne, Canadian horror writer. And this week, this week, we're going back to the music well to speak to some musicians whose work I've been a fan of for a little while now. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you a little story. Before I had any idea that I liked broadcasting or podcasting, frankly, before I even knew what those things were, podcasting at least, radio was an old, old friend of mine, I would volunteer for the Victoria Spoken Word Festival. It started out that I would cover it for campus radio, and then I started volunteering for the festival itself as a driver. I would pick up the poets from the airport, I would take them to wherever it was they were staying, And then I would make sure they got to and from the venue for whatever function it is they had to do in a day. And, you know, I, I did it not, I think I only did it for a year. And I think that was the last year of the festival, but I really enjoyed it. And not because I like driving, although I do like driving, but because being around people who are excited about what they're doing and who are discovering, because most of these, most of these poets were younger, who are discovering their capacity for creativity is a very exciting thing. And since starting this show, this is episode I think 12 now, it has been that for me again. You know, I don't mind telling you, obviously this has been a very difficult couple of years for everyone, and uh, certainly I am no exception to that. But doing largely the truth, getting to know these fine folks, it has really been wonderful so far, and I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I am. As I mentioned, tonight's guests are a talented band from the UK. They are Damn Good Liars, and that is not an insult. That is, in fact, their name. You can look it up if you don't believe me. They dropped their debut self-titled EP this year, and they've been on a roll ever since. And I think you're going to enjoy the conversation we have, because it goes from their music to writer's block, which, of course, we talked about with Mike last week, and so much more. Before we get there, though, I want to remind you that if you want an ad-free feed, and who doesn't, because ads suck, Head on over to patreon.com slash largely the truth. And for only $2 a month, you get to listen to these episodes without any ads. You get them two days early and you get any bonus conversations that didn't make the main show. All right, enough salesmanship. It is time to pick up the phone and reach out to damn good liars. With the release of their latest single burning beach, my guests tonight have added to an already impressive year, which has included the release of their debut EP their first live dates, and an appearance on BBC Radio's Introducing. Considering they've managed all of this in the middle of a pandemic, I can only imagine we're just seeing the beginning for this talented trio. Who are they, you ask? They are Steve Jenner, Ian Turner, and Ellis Turner, also known as Damn Good Liars. Guys, welcome to Largely the Truth. 
Hello, thank you for having us. Thank you. Oh, thank you for being here. I have been enjoying your EP since Ellis sent it to me over at Ghost Story Guys. And uh, each single just gets better and better. So I, I really am looking forward to, well, A, hearing where you go, and, and B, hearing about how all this came about. Before we get started, though, I, I just want to say congratulations on your success so far because, I mean, your reviews have been great. Uh, as I mentioned, you made it onto BBC's Introducing, with praise, mm-hmm. no less. And you guys are already over 400 monthly listeners on Spotify. And, and I know that's not an easy thing to do, especially right out of the gate. So that's, that's got to feel good to have, uh, have such a great jump so far. Definitely. I mean, um, Steve will tell you it's been quite a lot of work. I mean, it's been, he's been tireless in trying to get the music out there and really trying to promote it as much as possible from, as you say, from standing still. Steve will probably give you a better account of exactly all the kind of trials and tribulations of the various campaigns that he's had to embark on to sort of make it as as prominent as it has been so far. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun journey to date. Um, I think uh, you know a lot of it is a little bit is learning as you go, right? Um, learning where works from a promotion point of view and where it doesn't, and you know reaching out to the network. I think we're really lucky here, um, and we were very lucky um, in getting involved with the BBC because that's helped um, enormously. Mm-hmm. Not just in appearing on the show. I think we've been on the show twice now. But they, um, they do a lot of work on mentoring and advising new acts. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's been really useful. So um, I've had a couple of calls, you know, with, you know, as a, as a group. So they basically, um, the BBC are basically for our region, have pulled together a group of unsigned bands and we, uh, we get together as a forum and we discuss things. And that's been really helpful. And that's how our, our first live date came about. So um, that was through a, a event um, organizer um, actually hearing us on the show. So um, that's been really useful. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, vehicle to then use to then um, get into other promotional activities and broaden out our, our base of people to talk to a network with. And as someone who is a real um, lifelong fan of radio, it's nice to know that radio still has, at least somewhere, that kind of influence, that people are still listening and that it, uh, it can affect the way that they, they then sort of choose their new music. Because over here in Canada, radio, it's, it's not going so well. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting, you know, what we've got through, through radio. And, I, and I, I, I was with you, I was not expecting the sort of you know, impact it would have I'm um, just with radio, so I've been really impressed. And and and, and again to say, I know we're we are we're very lucky in this, more so than other countries. In that, you know, the BBC is such a, a a a huge part of UK music, and their influence um, spoils us. Is probably the word I'm looking for. So we are we're very lucky to have within this country that resource and be able to tap into it. And before we start talking about the music itself, I'd uh, obviously like to learn a little bit about where the band comes from. Steve and Ian, you two have known each other for quite some time, correct? Yeah, we we go back, oh, probably 15, 20 years. I mean, it's it's difficult to remember. We sort of met each other through uh, some companies we were working working with uh, and quickly realized we were both into, into music. And this project sort of started seriously, I'd say, what, probably... 
five years ago, Steve, maybe six, when we started just working on some some ideas and jams that, that actually turned into some of the songs. It's actually sometimes quite difficult to remember the lineage of a, you know, where did, <laughs> where did something come from? Where did Psychopath come from? when it's gone through. And, and the funny thing is when you create these things, it's called jam number 21 and you might call it, you might call it fish number three. Um, right. And actually going back to our archives, we look through a project and go, Oh, that, that sounds really interesting. What, what's it called? It's, it's called jam three, but it turns out that actually that became something else and that's how it began. So um, we, we, we started with that. And then Steve started actually uh, working with a, a musician in the U S to get some, uh, uh, some guitar tips and lessons, and that sort of uh, spurred it on, really. Interesting. That seems to be uh, something I keep hearing as I talk to musicians, you know, the, the number of people who have been able to interact with musicians on the other side of the world and yeah. and either just trade stems or learn from each other, which I think is is just fantastic because it can be tough to sort of build community around yourself, uh, especially, yeah. you know, in a, well, in a pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I think it was about, well, it's almost two years ago now. You know, I've been following a band called um, Deep Valley for some time. And Lindsay from Deep Valley put somebody up on, on Instagram, I think it was, just saying, you know, does anybody want any, uh, you know, guitar lessons or tips or anything like that? And I thought, wow, you know, I'd like to have and just see what happens. And uh, I got a response back pretty quickly, which was fantastic. I was blown away. And so I would have, you know, every few months, I would have uh, this type of Zoom call with Lindsay and we would um, go through some of our material, etc. Not learning the songs so much as learning the songs, but learning the background to it, how she put it together and that type of thing. And right. just in conversation one day, she just said, um, do you have any of your stuff? Do you want to play to me? I thought, mm, uh, maybe, maybe. So I think, you know, Ian and I dug through, as he, as he said, dug through the archives and we pulled together a few demos, which I then shared with uh, Lindsay. We quite formally went through and she went through each of the tracks and gave us um, a lot of feedback. That's good. That doesn't work. Try this, try that. And, you know, her enthusiasm was such that we thought, right, well, actually, we need to take the next step here. And she said, well, so what do you do about vocalist? Uh, I thought, I'm not sure. Because really? you don't want to hear either of us sing, by the way. I just want to <laughs> qualify that one very quickly. That's not true. That's not true. They're just being modest. Yeah. Ian <laughs> can sing quite well, actually. Um, yeah, so she pushed us. She pushed us in that direction, which is great. And it's great. When you hear it from somebody, you know, Ian and I can sit there and, you know, talk about stuff and, and uh, wax lyrical about us and say how good it is. But when you actually hear from a, a professional musician that she thinks there's something there, it does give you that impetus. It does give you that motivation. Sure. And you know, maybe we actually need to dust this off and actually do something with it rather than just sit in Ian's studio and listen to it. You know? So that was, that was the, I think, the, the, the big kick that I definitely needed to say, actually, let's try and do something with this. And from my angle, approaching them, obviously after they'd started collaborating and making music, the first time I heard their music, I thought they would be, they'd been doing it professionally for years. I had no idea that it was maybe, you know, it was maybe just the start of something. I just thought, well, these guys have clearly been doing it, you know, for decades. I mean, Ian has been playing bass for decades and so has Steve um, been playing guitar. But I just assumed that this was another of many projects that they had great, you know, loads of success in and that I was joining people who, you know, had far more experience than me. So, yeah, 
<laughs> I mean, that would have been my assumption too, listening to the tracks. Absolutely. And so how did they find you? So I'm the last person in the world to have Facebook. I've, I've been cajoled into doing it now, but um, <laughs> at the time, um, uh, my page is Ellis Turner. Um, at the time, I didn't have any Facebook. So my friend, uh, Charlie, who is also an artist called Chalky, who I was working with at the time, spotted a Facebook post for a, a, an instrumental duo, I think it read. And he literally forwarded it to me and said, oh, I, I, this could be your sort of thing, because he knew that I had a love for writing and for creating as opposed to just the singing part and absolutely not to dumb that down. But I, I'm, I'm, I love doing my own thing as much as singing other people's songs. Um, and he said, you should, you should check them. You should check them out. And I literally did it that day because I'm, I'm so terrible. If I say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it later. It will never happen. So I was like, right, I'm going to check them out right now. I'm going to go on SoundCloud right now because I was won't do it. And I was absolutely blown away by hearing the instrumental for what actually then became our first single called Station Wagon Motel Chic. And literally, literally got an email and said, hey, this is me. Here's a demo of me singing probably some jazz, actually. <laughs> I hope you like it. Thinking, oh, well, it'd be nice if I hear back within a week. And I think within about half an hour, Steve, he'd come back to me and said, all right, well, yeah okay um well let's let's send you a piece of music and see what you do with that um and it was a cover song that you guys wanted me to sing as a sort of yeah. tryout and then they kept talking to me so i guess it was yeah but that was but that was quite special because normally when you advertise for singers you get a whole bunch of people um replying and you know all sorts of different genres and we already had in our our ideal we wanted someone that you know, was a little bit garbage like it's a bit indie, so which is why we sent a queer by Garbage to do it, which we'd done a backing track for ages ago. We said, you have a sing over that. And the thing that, that's amazing about Lisa is you don't get a track back. You get 23 <laughs> tracks back with all the backing vocals done amazingly and harmonies. And actually, it's, it's, it's the, well, the technology, because of lockdown, first time round, uh, we hadn't quite got it right, um, and tempos were out of sync, and it was like ah, it was. It, we had to we had to um, figure out. But no, it was. But that first one, when when that came back, we we were sort of pretty pretty blown away. Um, but a a that you know she put in that much effort, mm -hmm. and stylistically exactly what we were looking for. So uh, I, we just we just got super lucky. Since you mentioned Station Wagon Motel Chic, I, I, maybe that's, let's make that the first song we talk about. The first thing I, I need to know is, what is Station Wagon Motel Chic? I mean, I, I could give you the, it is whatever you want it to be, like, <laughs> but uh, uh, for, me, for me, it was one of my many mad dreams. premise is you know, a guy's down on his luck he lives out the back of his station wagon but to him you know he still has a sense of well-being about himself he has a sense of confidence and so you know as soon as he steps out of where he's sheltering he is he is that cool dude that he in, in his mind he wants to be and uh that was the, the premise of 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 that one line that i came up with and then you know, then Ellis and I just took that idea from there. 
But that's really what a station wagon motel chic is about. Does he wear um, bright blue cowboy boots, Steve? Um, he, he depends on what day of the week it is. Right, okay. So it's not autobiographical then? No, 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 no. I've never lived in the station <laughs> Steve wagon. has an amazing collection of um, uh, very colourful boots. He does. To go with his guitars. Yes. That is fantastic. Thank you very much. <laughs> As oh, someone who see. collects very loud shirts, I, I appreciate that. I like I like colors. I like colors. Love it. There's some great Instagram references to that on our page. I will check yeah. this out. <laughs> the premise for Station Wagon Motel Chic actually reminds me of a, a fellow I met once on the road. So I, I think I may have met your your the spiritual embodiment of your song. <laughs> I was uh, driving through uh, rural Montana, and I, I spotted a pullout by a lake and I, I'd been driving for several hours. So I thought, well, it's time to, time to, uh, take a quick break. And there was this little red, uh, wasn't, wasn't a station wagon. It was actually a sports car, but I pulled in behind this car and I, I I walked down to the lake and there was this guy there and he had blue jeans on. I I don't know about blue cowboy boots. I don't remember anymore. It's about 10 years ago now. But, um, this guy told me he had just decided on a whim to leave, to pick up and leave North Carolina and go find somewhere else to live. And this is, you know, dozens of hours west. I've met him now. And he was just, he, he couldn't help but tell me about all the, the, the pictures he'd taken in Yellowstone <laughs> along the way. And he was so clearly desperate for human connection that he would talk to pretty much anyone. Because again, I'm a stranger by the lake. I could very well be a murderer, or he could. Uh, <laughs> but there was still that sense of cool about this guy who just, no, I'm just going to pick up and go. And sure, I'm living out of my little, my little red sports car right now, but I'm still that guy. So somewhere out there is say you either willed this into being yourself or, uh, you know, somehow you know, picked, picked up on it, but he's out there. I definitely think so. I mean, and, and for, for me, if I think, if I think hard about why, did, why did I come up with that? And, and it actually comes back to Canada. In my youth, I, uh, I spent some time in Canada. I went to university, uh, Brock University in St. Catharines, oh, okay. south of um, Ontario. And I uh, went back, went back, uh, went back to try and do some work in the U.S. about a year later, and it didn't work out very well. So down on my luck, I had a, I had a very cheap car. Um, I had one suitcase and a guitar, and I thought, I'm stuck here. What do I do? And I thought, well, I know, I'll go to Canada. <laughs> so I just drove north, and I avoided the toll roads and drove north to Canada, and got there. Yeah, got there as the money ran out. So I think some of it, some of it comes from those types of life stories, and I think it's nice, you know, to draw on those types of things. Absolutely. And so, do the lyrics do they come in with with Ellis, or do, were the lyrics pre-existing when she got there? Uh, I think on, uh, it depends. Each track comes around in a different way. I mean, the way we we write is different on tracks. The way the lyrics come together on Station Wagon, I think I had some lyrics for um, the verses written, but nothing more than that and it's really ellis took it and and melded it into shape lyrically so that we actually had a song out of it but as i said each song comes around in different ways there is no set method we use um which is quite nice i'm kind of glad steve actually that you told me what your what your um what your initial uh, mood was for the song so don't think i've actually asked <laughs> you that or found that out I just, I just looked at the lyrics. I, I had this sort of half-written song, as you say, Steve, with some lyrics for the verses and no chorus and thought, oh, 
Jesus has got to be good because this is my first song for them. I've got to, I've got to throw everything I've got at them because otherwise they won't have me again. So so I very much I very much just went with it and just just went with my gut and hope that it was in the ballpark of what Ian and Steve were hoping for when they first, when they got it back. Yeah. So after Station Wagon Motel Chic, which track came next? We basically did the fourth from the EP, and they were, you know, they all came together. It was, it was quite, it was quite good because we had the four, and so once we found their list, we almost worked, almost the four were almost being worked on at the same time and in conjunction. So we'd get, as Ian said, we were using the technology to, you know, get get a piece of vocals from Ellis, incorporate it, do changes, etc. And it was really a melding pot of all four, but you know, were sort of being worked on. Um, at the same time, which was um, you know, a, a great time, you know, working on them and uh, coming back, trying different bits. You know, we took them once we had, once we worked in some of the vocals, I took them back to Lindsay from Deep Valley, played it to her again, got some more notes and then Ian and I then did further work. And in one case, did some more instrumentation on one of the songs. So yeah, it was a really creative time working through those. But um, yeah, they all, all came out pretty much in parallel, really. Well, the, it was interesting because I think that definitely Tobacco Lips was most developed in terms of had lyrics that Steve had written. And then Unworthy was one we were working on that we just didn't have any words for. And I, and I think, I can't even remember what the original, it had a different name as well. And it's, I was just trying to look through the projects to see what we used to call it, and I can't remember anymore. Can you remember, Steve? I'd have to look it up. Mate. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to go for the archives now. It, it had another name, and then, and then this was the first one we passed to Ellis, and said, "See what you can come up with." And they're all Ellis's lyrics, which I love. I think it's fantastic. Really, really, really great lyric. And even then, we were like, "Oh, what do we call it?" <laughs> yeah. um, because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't obvious from the line that. And there, but there's a really there's a great line where she sings, you know, "I'm not, I'm unworthy," and it's sort of first time I heard it. There was that that's like you know, tingle up the spine kind of. Whoa, that's that's really cool, and that's that's got to be the title. So um, so yeah, they they are they they do end up going through different routes. And then I think the next one was then not not a psychopath. Yeah. So that that gave us the EP to to release. I have a feeling that track was called Hope, and I wrote it yes. to try and encapsulate that word. And then I'd send it back to you guys, and you're like, "This is this is amazing." Um, but but not but we need to call it something else. And I think that's how we. Great memory. Yeah, Hope seventy five. Hope seventy five. There you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we had we had the term, the BPM in the in the title just in case. That's yeah, absolutely yeah. always always for this for this piecemeal recording style. Well, because that was one of the one something. of the remote recording yeah. problems. We found that if we didn't tell Alice what the BPM was, yeah, she'd bring it in, put her vocals in, and send something back <laughs> that was at probably the default one hundred and twenty BPM. Yes. 
And then you try to bring that into your song and everything goes everywhere. It was like, no, we can't do that again. Especially when you've got 24 tracks of vocal together as well. But yeah, no, and when it's one vocal track, it's easy. But when there's, there's, there's a whole stack of them all over the place with weird vocals going, ah, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, there's definitely um, a lot of weird, weird, weird noises that I like yeah, weird noises. I think that started off as a slight insecurity at doing one single track for my vocal and thinking, oh, I, I don't, I don't, I've had this insecurity all my singing life of, oh, do I pitch correctly? And um, have I really, have I really nailed that? I know what I'll do. If I give it three layers, then no one will notice if one of those isn't pitched correctly. And that's how it started. And then it's kind of run away with me. Now it's an addiction. I, I don't know what to say. It's become a bit of a signature sound for us now, hasn't it? work so you're doing something right thank you thank out of curiosity what software are you, are you using to build the songs so we we use logic steve and i are on logic i'm literally on baby garage band baby, baby logic which which all works <laughs> fine i mean and you do go through all sorts of ways of what's the best way to share this stuff and do we put things in a dropbox or we put things in a shared folder and you know that's been one of the one of the challenges of lockdown that we've all had, all music projects I've done have this this challenge. We've actually ended up just going back to using WeTransfer and, and sending the things around that way. Right. Because everything goes, you know, I don't know if you would, the problem with Dropbox is someone puts it in a folder, and depending on how they, you know, someone drags it out onto their desktop, which deletes it from the original folder. So that all you, you're, and then you get version sync hell. Um, yes. So yeah, it, it, it's a challenge. I mean, it's not, especially with big projects, when these project files end up, uh, I've just sent Steve. Uh, I was just doing bass on a on, on a track for him with one of our next next tracks, and that's a you know that's a couple of gigabytes worth of stuff. And right. and in rural England, we don't have good broadband, do we, Steve? No, it's it. It takes forever to upload, which which is frustrating, but also makes you a little bit more diligent because you think, right, I'm going to package this. I'm going to send this to Ian. But it's going to take hours, to literally hours and hours to upload. So let me, let me try and make sure I've got this right before I send it. But, you know, I mean, lockdown has been hard from that point of view. Um, I think we've been very fortunate that Ian and I both have, have setups in our home where we can, you know, we can work with this, work with the stuff remotely and we can record remotely, et cetera, which has been, you know, advantageous. We would have really, you know, we had, you know it wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, we are lucky that we can do that and we can put it together. And also that, you know, Ian has the the skills and the knowledge to be able to bring it in and make it, you know, seem whole. Doing things remotely has been going on for years. I did an album about five, six years ago, and the singer was Jim Stapley in the States, who's a, an amazing voice, but I think he's in Nashville somewhere. You know, we basically send him the backing tracks and he'd send us back. I don't know, five, six, ten versions with all the outtakes as well, which were hilarious. Um, <laughs> uh, so, because uh, so and all that kind of stuff, and that's and that's been going on for years. I, I think COVID has just made it the norm now. Right. But it, 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 to be honest, I mean, I actually funny. I had a, I was working with a band yesterday, and we were all in the room, and they're all playing together, looking at each other in the eye, and and it was great. I mean, it's just and that's the first one of those I've done for a while. And I think everyone's desperate to get back to doing that. Get, get and and it's great. We've had we've had Ellis over. We worked on some stuff, done some rehearsals, and nothing nothing beats being in the same room. Definitely. I mean, we don't live that far away from each other. 
I guess actually for you, Brennan, it would seem like quite a small, it's probably only like two and a half hours drive away. It's not that far really, but obviously we were heavily restricted until about April time. And still, yeah, still a major road trip going down, but I really enjoy it. And I love going to actually see Stephen in person because they're, they're jolly good people to hang out with and have fun with, apart from the professionals that they are. So speaking of, of lockdown, in interviews, you guys have described yourself as being initially concepted as a studio project, but obviously now you've played live gigs. And so what was that experience like? Um, yeah, so then the first live gig will be um, be uh, uh, middle of uh, November. Oh, so okay. I think about, I think actually, so you have four weeks ago, Ray. So no, so we haven't, yeah, we haven't played. My mistake, yet. my mistake. I, I thought you guys had done a... No, not at all. Um, so yeah, and we hadn't really... You know, when we start, Ian and I started doing this, we weren't thinking, you know, or I wasn't thinking about, okay, well, we need to do, we need to do this and, you know, we need to play it live. It, it was a you know, studio project until then people started asking us, so when are you playing live? And, oh, okay, um, oh, that could be interesting. How do you do it live when you've got 25 vocal tracks? Quiet. <laughs> 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 Yeah, so yeah, so it was fun. So even, you know, and that was like a, another thing was just to sit down and go, right, okay, so how do we take this from, you know, in, in some of the songs are quite complex. How do we take that and how do we actually uh, make that work uh, for a live environment? So um, uh, the jury is out until 19th of November. You can get tickets on our website. Please, please visit the website. Tickets are online there. Fingers crossed, uh, we put it off. I mean, it sounds... And obviously, I'm going to say this, but in in live rehearsal, so in rehearsal, it sounds great. We have the ability um, in in studio to go in and, you know, basically when we play there, it's as if we were playing a gig because he has the infrastructure that we can do that. So you do get a sense of what it's going to sound like. um, And we we partially recorded the last uh, rehearsal. And so you, you take that away and you actually listen to it and you go, okay, yeah, that's definitely coming together. So I'm pretty positive about that and looking forward to it. And, you know, once we've done the first one, um, may more, many more may And the thing, the thing is, because we didn't record it initially as a, a band in a room, it was a studio project, lots of the tracks have multiple drum kits playing at the same time. So if you'd have right. to have two drummers, um, uh, we ended up with me playing bass, although I played for a good chunk of the guitar. So Steve had to learn my guitar parts which right. I couldn't remember how to play. So I, he was like, how did you play this? I don't know. <laughs> um, so we went through that and had to relearn some of those. So, uh, and I was playing, I think you played some of the bass on those, so I had to learn your bass. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so yeah. that was definitely one of the most frustrating parts was coming back to something when you wrote it like a year ago, you know, or I mean, some of the stuff on Psychopath came out of a jam session that God knows when we actually did that. And then to sit down and go, what were you playing? I ain't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> so, uh, and, and the funny thing, without getting techni- technically on, on, um, too muso on, on you, a few of the songs are written with very strange tunings on the guitar. So normal, there's like standard tuning. Yeah. Right. And, and we, were, we were trying to play these things again. What we have not, how did we do this? Yeah. And then the, <laughs> when, when the penny dropped that it was, it was a different tuning, it all fell together, but it was it wasn't it wasn't that obvious sometimes. So uh, right. So yeah, I mean, and again, sometimes we we do that to just be creative and come up with something different. And and you you pick up the guitar and it makes a completely different sound. 
and what you come up with is not going to be what your what your hands normally go and do. So, uh, so that that gives us some new creative ideas. So, uh, and very much, you know, uh, I think one of the singles coming out soon, "Call to All," a whole bunch of them have different different tunings on, just to just to switch it up a bit and not just be too normal. Yeah. So to play live without taking a dozen guitars along. Um, um, uh, has has been a challenge to try. As Ian said, we, what we've had to do is basically rework them and and learn how to play them in different tunings. And and I think Ellis came up with the expression. So we have live versions of the songs. Is the easiest way. Which sound great. They do sound good. Uh, and they yeah, sound they sound good. they sound great. They sound great. Um, I think it's I think it's always a danger though if you try to religiously um, recreate the song as it was recorded. I think it also lacks a bit of authenticity if you try to do that. Let's, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to create a, a, a live set. Um, so it's not a duplicate of what we've recorded. Um, it, is, it is something new and something different. I have to wonder if that's sort of a difference between, you know, because I imagine the pandemic has birthed a lot of bedroom projects. You know, a lot of a lot of artists who are who are kind of doing the the stem swapping thing, but I I have to think that ability to adapt is what's going to mean the difference for the groups that that can graduate to the stage. They're not trying to slavishly recreate what they did; they're evolving. Yeah, I mean, it's been a gift for a lot of people to have the time to write. Uh, and, oh, I, sure. and I remember very early on, I went through a period and I was I was trying to write something new you know three four songs a week and you know a lot of it you're going to throw in the bin but it's a discipline and, and it's exercising that muscle of writing the the problem was for a period especially for the first lockdown i think there was such a uh, i remember going for a walk from here and it was like a scene from 28 weeks later I mean, there was no there was no one on the street and i think the level of stress and i hadn't realized you know there was there's sort of level of fear and stress of how the hell is this going to end? What's going to happen? How long is it going to last? You then come back and go, I'm going to write some stuff and nothing happens. I think all writers have this like, you know, writer's block. We sit here with all this equipment and guitars and ready to go and nothing happens. It's really frustrating. And then other times, I never quite figured out why. Other times you sit down and, and, and stuff just comes together. So, so you know, we've had, we've had the time and I'm, I'm sure Ellis has had something similar. We've had the time to do it, but sometimes you end up with writer's block which is which is very frustrating i definitely experienced i was writing prol prolifically in uh, the summer of 2020 um it was literally i work as a what's been deemed a key worker i don't know if that term still applies but i work part-time in a shop which stayed open and when i wasn't there i was literally just coming home and just getting stuff down and i did write about a few experiences of, 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 I guess, living through that time and particularly working through that time as someone dealing with the public <laughs> um, in their aggrieved state. Um, Yikes. Yes. So I found it really cathartic. And I, I was working with Chalky um, at the time before I met these guys and we were just churning stuff out. We got an album out as a result <laughs> of that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the transformative effect that had. I've heard this so many times from so many people. And they suddenly experienced creative spurts, inspiration, epiphanies, just because I guess we all know that the, what was normal is no longer, it's never going to be normal. Like you and Paul have said, 
things have changed and they will just they won't they won't ever revert to what they were before so people are trying to capture that and trying to experience that through their art and that's that definitely happened to me next i thought we'd talk about burning beach the latest single Actually, that one has also come from a uh, probably an alternative tuning thing. I was playing around with a riff. This is probably a long time ago, probably five or six years ago, this one. This, the main riff for this one came about. And it was sort of using a tuning that a band called Black Rebel Motorcycle Club use. Okay. Um, and uh, it does have a bit of that feel. And again, being a studio thing, we probably put too many guitars on it. There was quite a few layers of guitars on that one. And I also like having some sort of uh, synthesizers on there, but they're the more strange background noises rather than, you know, your Emerson, Lake and Parlour sort of twiddly lead bits. But we'd go for the, go for the weird on that one. And we sent that one to Ellis as a, one that Steve and I particularly liked and, and said, you know, don't, yeah. and actually I think we called it, it was called Burning Beach for no particular reason. And um, we said to Ellis, you know, have a, have a go with this. We quite like this one. And quite surprised when she'd actually used the phrase back in, in the song as well. But, the, uh, but it came back sounding great. And the thing I really, really love in that is the spoken bit in the middle. Because every time we get stuff back from Ellis, there's, there's, there's usually a bit in there where we go, wow, that's just, I mean, it's, there's, there's something that lifts it as, as well. So uh, uh, that sort of spoken bit in the middle is uh, very cool. Thank you. That actually was inspired by the Blondie album Auto American. And it's the, I think it's the first track on the album. And I've always been, I love Debbie Harry. I've always been fascinated by uh, their create, her creative path and the creative path of Blondie because it's, they've done some off the wall stuff. And that's one of my favourite albums. And I think I was just hell bent on using that, um, to, those two words in, in the final <laughs> lyrics. And I've been watching an episode of Black Mirror. Have you guys had Black Mirror? Oh, yeah. You know what that yeah, very, is? very popular over here. Yep. Okay. So it was a particular episode of that, the Blondie reference. And I just started, I, I relented and just started my social media. And I'm, I'm kind of quite amused by, you know, how much there is, how much stimulus there is on social media and, you know, my observations of people just living really closely beside it and, you know, how intoxicating it can be. And all of these kind of inputs kind of melded together. And so I came up with this situation of a post-apocalyptic world where <laughs> social media, I guess, has won the day or has it. Da, da, da. It's one of my favourite songs. Oh, we're there already. I was going to say uh, that well, feels... Yeah. <laughs> What have we got left? We've had the pandemic. We've got what have we got left? Floods. Well, we've had those fires. We've had those. Shush, shush, shush. Let's let's not yeah. encourage this. Let's not uh, <laughs> let's not will anything else into being. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Just um, playing with the, um, the slightly dark ideas that those things presented. I guess. Yeah. And it, it's a haunting track. I mean, it. Um, I think of of the the album and the the uh, two singles. That's the one I've I've come back to the most. It's got. I mean, I I don't watch Black Mirror. I find it unsettling and nihilistic, and I I don't, I just can't. I can watch people murder each other on screen all the time, but the <laughs> situations in Black Mirror just yeah, they're quite 
close, aren't they? Yeah. Maybe <laughs> that's what it unsettling. is. Unsettling. Unsettling. That's probably the right word. Yeah. yeah. But it, that song manages yeah. to, I think, echo the best parts of that, uh, of that experience. You know, the, the, the aesthetic and, and the darkness without necessarily sending me into a, uh, a, a, a finger chewing spiral of terror. Yes, hopefully I'm not going to send you off with nightmares now I've said all that. <laughs> well, that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of work. <laughs> Watch a horror film to adjust the balance. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys, you know, you described garbage as being an influence and um, obviously the 90s are, are a very strong presence in, in your music. And I'm, I'm kind of curious as we, as we wind down here, when I had Chad Williamson from Moonrunner 83 on the show, Chad's obviously he's a Canadian synthwave guy, and we were discussing the notion that synthwave, that sort of '80s influenced sound, that is kind of peaked, and is now ebbing in terms of its popularity. The the best people in the genre are kind of finding other, finding other ways to explore the sound, and we were discussing the, the idea that that '80s nostalgia is giving way to '90s nostalgia, and mm. I wondered what you guys thought about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think. You know, we are we are a, a product of what we listen to, right? And what we what we almost sometimes aspire to be like. And the thing I like about this is the it's a very strong rhythmic music. And almost in some respects, we get get to almost the hypnotic, and and that that comes from some of the bass lines for me with that sort of strong drums and bass. I mean, I I used to listen to and I used to go and see Killing Joke a lot um, mm. in the in probably the eighties and nineties. So there's a bit of bit of influence there, and again, Jazz Coleman would use these very aggressive, nasty synthesizer lines. They weren't melodic, but they were there as a bit. And that, there's, I mean, I, and again, whether it was conscious, but looking back at it, it's probably that's pervaded into some of it. Um, that from my part of the influence, and and the nice thing is, Steve, you know, Steve and I, we used to go to quite a few gigs, and he's dragged dragged me along to see things that. I didn't know about that were great, but massively influenced him. Like things like the Kills, Queens of the Stone Age are definitely sort of Steve's top of Steve's list, and, and weren't particularly on my on my agenda at that point. But uh, so I think we it feels like we've ended up with a, you know, we all love garbage. Um, yeah. I think we've also then got I've got some heavier influence. Uh, I grew up with you know the the Cure and Joy Division and um, right. and and the sort of the punk movement. And Steve, I mean, he'll tell you his influences. So there's, you know, it's a melting pot of the, the three of us, really. I mean, and and it, and it it feels feels like it's just sort of fused fused it all together. Wait till you experience Bauhaus live next week, Ian. Yeah, and I've not, I've never seen Bauhaus, but I quite, I like, I love the Ziggy Star. I think the best version of Ziggy Stardust was the Bauhaus version. Yeah. So that's why I'm going. They better do that next week, Steve, or I'll be very upset. <laughs> so just on the first couple of nights of the tour in Mexico, so I had a, had a little look at a set list, and uh, you won't be disappointed. I mean, I've oh, seen, I, over the years, because obviously they've been around since 79, um, so I've seen them a few times over the years, and um, definitely, a, definitely a, a, a big influence and a, a real love of mine. Both what they recorded and and live is uh, is watching Bauhaus. So you know that gig's been put off and put off and put off. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. So that should be a that should be an, an interesting one. And definitely, I mean, and again, you know, they uh, you know back to what Ian said. You know, when you listen to them uh, as a, as a four piece and 
you know, the, the sound that comes out. Pretty impressive for 79 with the, with the technology they had then. So, yeah, but so some of their influences creep in. I'm not going to tell you which songs, but uh, there's definitely there's definitely uh, um, a couple I might I might have that are heavily influenced by Bauhaus. As we head out here, what uh, what comes next for Damn Good Liars? Um, well, we so we got the live dates on uh, November the 19th. Call to All, uh, our next track gets released the same day, which was a uh, fort- fortunate okay. timing. So that's good. And we continue to work on new material. So um, as, as Ian alluded to earlier, he just sent me something. So I'm going to be really excited to uh, open that up and have a listen, listen to, uh, uh, to those parts. So, yeah, we continue, continue to work and um, create new, new material. As a fan, I find that very, very exciting. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Where can everyone find you guys online? So uh, our website is uh, damngoodliars.com or dgl.band. And on the website, you'll find links to all our social media, music, um, more information, uh, videos and pictures as well. Very cool. Well, the band is Damn Good Liars. The EP is the, well, the same name. And their latest single is Burning Beach. You'll find a link to all their socials and their Bandcamp page in the show notes. And folks, make sure to check them out. You don't want to miss getting in on this early because these guys are going places. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Brennan. Thank you so much, Brennan. It's a pleasure. All right. That's the ballgame. Don't forget, you can find more from Damn Good Liars at their website, damngoodliars.com, at their Facebook page, or rather their Bandcamp page, uh, damngoodliars.bandcamp.com. They also have a Facebook page, which you can find at their website. And if you're in the UK and you're comfortable being around crowds, you brave soul you, make sure to check out their first live date coming up on November 19th. Again, you'll find links to all their uh, social media and website stuff in the show notes. And uh, yeah, if you do go to the show, send us a picture, tag us on social media. I would, uh, I'd love to see it. I wish I could be there. Um, Perhaps one day I will be. Fingers crossed. All right, one quick note before I go. And uh, (laughs) someone reached out and they said, why the hell do you have the opening to the show that you do? And there is a pretty easy, uh, pretty easy explanation for that. But I forget that, uh, you know, not everyone who listens to the show knows me. Lords of the Truth began as a radio show. Uh, It was on Stoke FM 92.5, and it was a music show. It was a weekly music show where I would play the latest and greatest in independent music. Uh, It didn't start that way. It just started as a music show, but it evolved to the the independent music thing, and I adored it. I really, really did. The show ran for two years from November 2017 to November 2019, and for reasons I, I won't get into here, Stoke FM and I parted ways. And the show has been on hiatus since because, uh, well, I mean, Canadian radio is not in a great place right now. The show has been on hiatus. I resurrected it for patrons of the Ghost Story Guys podcast, which is, of course, my, my day job, my main job. And I would do an hour, uh, sometimes two hours worth of new music. But eventually, one, it got too expensive to produce. And two, and this was really the biggest concern, was that the audience didn't really come to the Ghost Story Guys Patreon for a music show. You know, they came for ghost stories, which is fair enough. So I've stopped doing that. However, something I have considered is reinstituting the radio show notion, the music show, I should say, for patrons of this show, because there are a few and how I love you. But anyways, that's that's something that's uh, in the future, something on my mind, thinking about it. But to answer the, uh, actually a couple people who asked me, why is the show structured this way? 
The show is structured this way because originally it was on the radio. And I very much miss having this show on the radio. And perhaps one day we can get there again. There was one brief moment where there was a glimmer of hope and, and, and then it went away. But uh, that gives me further hope that it may yet happen. So fingers crossed. We shall see. But for now, I am so, so grateful to every single one of you who listen. Because without you, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Thanks again to Damn Good Liars. Don't forget to check out links to all their stuff in the show notes. If you can, buy the EP and the singles. You know how I feel about supporting independent artists. The cash means a hell of a lot more to them than it does to a major label. But even if you can't do that, just listen to them on streaming. It still counts, and it's nice to know that people are out there. Thanks also to Peter Kursoff of Pizanto Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find him online at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you stream your tunes. Finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>